Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde, and you're listening to Talking Books, Petersfield's own monthly book programme. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books, bringing you my tips for what to look out for. Well, we don't have an author guest this month. We have two. Uh, John has cleverly extracted Kate Moss's interview with you uh, at the launch of Landfall, and we've including, we're including highlights. That's brilliant, Tim, and I hope I'll be able to talk a little bit about the launch, because it was absolutely fantastic. But let's start, as usual, with what you've been reading. Well, I've been reading, um, well, I've been mainly reading Landfall, of course. Oh, of course. Uh, oh, bless you. Uh, which, which I really enjoyed, and we'll maybe talk about a bit more about that oh, later. Great. Um I've also been reading The Sentence by Louise Erdrich, which we're doing for our book club here um, later on in April. And um, it's, it's a strange book. It's a ghost story, really, set in a Native American bookshop. Um, it's humorous, it's sharp, it's um, set in the, in the Twin Cities during the, the end of the pandemic and also the fallout from the killing of George Floyd. So it's, um, it's got plenty going on there. Mm. And... Um, it's uh, all very interesting. It's something I, I would never have picked up, I don't think. So it's always good to, to ring the changes. Mm. Also, I've just picked up Somebody Else's Shoes. I haven't literally picked up their shoes. It's a book called <laughs> Somebody Else's Shoes by Jojo Moyes. Jojo Moyes. Which actually is about picking up someone else's shoes by mistake. So um, the, 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 the two the, women, isn't it? The the book is that, is that two women go to a gym and one picks up uh, a very glamorous woman's uh, bag and the other one picks up the, the knockoff cheap version that that uh, is falling apart and it's got a you know grotty pair of trainers in it um and um so she walks in these other person's shoes and discovers that she can actually be, become a different person when she projects herself in a different way so it's an interesting idea i'm not sure how i'm going to keep going for 350 pages of that but her we'll books see are getting we'll see. longer and longer yeah no, I, i've never read any of her books i thought it was about time i did so uh, i'm looking forward to getting st- stuck into that or or not as the case may be i may decide that after 50 pages of other people's shoes i've had enough of them but we'll we'll see excellent well i've read several jojo moyes and um it, it's very curate's eggy some i think are absolutely wonderful and others i just think are over long right she's got a great re- reputation she people has. people say she's she's brilliant at what she does um and anyway i thought it's time yeah I gave absolutely. her a go well, I've been um, rereading The Coming Darkness by Greg Moss because I was in Portsmouth interviewing him at this incredible new system. I don't even know what to call it, really. It's not a green screen. It's completely an immersive experience where we was as if we were in Paris and even with the, we could see the pavement and everything. And it was filmed. So when you actually look at the film, it looks exactly as though Greg and I are sitting in this lovely, sunny, Parisian evening with the Eiffel Tower behind us. Not in freezing Pompey. Not in freezing Pompey, in <laughs> grey, miserable Pompey. Um, but it was a bit strange because I was interviewing Greg and the live audience, because it was part of Portsmouth Bookfest, was sort of on my left so I was speaking to them through my left ear because I didn't dare turn. If I turned, I was apparently addressing an empty shop. 
which looked very odd on the film. So altogether, it was a different experience. Uh-huh. Okay. And he'd also given me, um, it's not even a, a advanced reading copy, it's still just a PDF final proof of his cosy crime novel. And I really enjoyed it. I think it, I think it knocked spots off Richard Osman, I would say that, wouldn't I? But what I loved about it, it was more like the Reverend Richard Coles. It had that kind of warmth behind it, which I really Good. enjoyed. And it's set in 1972, and I loved all those references. It was like Vesta beef curry. It was a bit sort of uh, powdery, but warming when reconstituted. So how appropriate that, that it's all futuristic, this thing, as the book is set in, set in the future, uh, to have this green backdrop, which is actually Paris or not. Yes. Uh, sounds, sounds, sounds great. It's yeah. absolutely wonderful. And Portsmouth are now foremost... It's CCIXR, but I can't remember for the life of me what it's what that actually stands for. But it is completely immersive, and yeah. they do all sorts of special effects and video games and everything. And they're quite interested in turning the Book of Bera into something, right? Um, which really excites me. It's interesting technology and uh, and books as well. I mean, I always talk about this chat chat whatever it's called GP, gpt gpt oh yes um and the idea that that you just give it a few ideas and it writes you a, a brilliant uh, bit of bit of prose mm. um put you writers out of business if we're not careful <laughs> <laughs> well not if the poem i wrote with it is anything to go right. by it's okay. absolutely awful i think i don't think be, they will be putting um quality writers of fiction out of business anytime soon i think sure. it might be quite good as a very literary highbrow booker prize maybe old booker prize sort of winner but if you want anything with emotion behind it i think it really doesn't get how to do that right it's really really interesting and i don't know um presumably they're going to get more and more sophisticated and and soon we'll be you know i don't know what they'll be doing but yeah i know well now we're going to have a little bit um of my launch so um my publisher john mitchinson and editor Liz Garner also spoke um, if anyone is interested in hearing what they had to say don't worry it's not all a eulogy about me it's very much about the writing of fiction and what does a developmental editor do so if you're a prospective writer interested in becoming published or working with an editor that might be quite interesting but if you're just pure reader um, I think you'll enjoy um, hearing Kate because if you know her interviews at Chichester Festival Theatre, she is just, I think she's the, the best interviewer I know because she doesn't insert herself into it. It's not all about her. It's very much about the person she's interviewing. And it meant a great deal to me. And if you want to know about lesbian pirates, it's also included. And who doesn't? Absolutely. Well, hello everyone. I mean, I feel an awful lot has already been said, which is fantastic. Um, but it our is, job's done. Our job is done. So we're back to the bar. But it's um, it's a great pleasure to be here to celebrate uh, the publication of the third one, Landfall. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure has everybody read the first two? Yes. So you so you have um, well, it's awful to say, but the best to come. It's a wonderful novel, and as Susie says, it's a love story. And it does, of course, finish everything, but at the same time, it doesn't finish it completely, which is another thing that Greg, I thought, taught, and there are many of other writers in the room 
here today, so you know all about that finishing, but there's still a tiny bit left. Um, but Susie, what, what I wanted to talk to you about, really, is the fact of writing a trilogy. So when you started with the Book of Berra, which then, of course, you know, became Sea Paths, and the beautiful covers from Unbound, wonderful, Marky, um, wonderful covers, um, is the Berra on the last page of this the one you had in your mind when you started. Why did I invite you? You see, <laughs> she always doesn't... Well, I've written one or two trilogies myself. <laughs> no, I think what's really weird about it is when I wrote the first book, I had no idea. I, I didn't have a trilogy in mind. It was completely standalone. The first draft was part of the MA, which I was doing with Greg, and it was just like shove 120,000 words out. So poor old Liz was faced with this inchoate thing that was showing every possible technique to get my MA. Um, <laughs> which you got with distinction, I if you'd like me to say that. Darling, yeah. darling. Um, which I got with distinction. But anyway, but, but as a novel, it really wasn't that great. It had to be trimmed down to about 90,000. So we just went for the best that we could possibly do. And then I just fell in love with Bera. And although she is intensely, as somebody said to me only this week, intensely slappable, um, I think she grows during that book. And you can see the seeds, what's extraordinary. Extraordinary. So when you go back, even in the prologue, there are things in the prologue that have come true. And I never went back till I actually finished Landfall. So a long-winded answer that, yes, at that bearer at the finish surprised me. Um, I mean, I don't want to say the absolute finish, but, you know, in maybe the finish of her journey made decisions that I didn't know she was going to take that made me feel intensely sad. But actually, I can see that it's entirely logical for her. And so you, you weren't thinking of a trilogy, but it was as if she said, I'm not done. So how did you, once you realised that, how did you then decide you were going to map the story going on? Because Obsidian's got a very dark core, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, with Landfall, there is a very different tone to it, I'd say, in some respects, although we've got all the things that we love from a Susie Wilde novel. So at that moment, when you thought, I'm not done with Berra, did you start to think, OK, I want to take her to this age or that age, or did you think about emotion, what you wanted her to become? It was very much character-driven. I'm really bad. Anyone who knows me really well, or fellow writers and so on, I'm a really bad plotter. And even if I think I'm going to, I either forget what I've decided or I just, oh, no, that's boring. Um, and, and the more plotting I do, the more bored I am and nothing ever gets written. So that's the story of my life pre-going to you and Greg. Um, so it's very much what comes out of character. And if I like to think that that's why the novels are so immersive and why people fall in love with Bera, because it's not like I'm constructing this thing that I make her jump through hoops. And I remember you saying, Kate, when early Labyrinth days, I think, there was something you said, but when you're writing, there's a moment in which the characters come round from behind you and pass in front of you, and you think, ah, there you are. And when that happens, when you've put so much into your characters, that is a wonderful moment. And it's not that they lead you... Exactly, because obviously you're still in charge. But, but you absolutely, if you're trying to move them like a chess piece, then, then they're going to resist hugely. 
Yes, because it, it doesn't come from inside. It's, it's sort of the puppet master outside, which never works. So the first one, coming of age, we've talked about. The second one, quest. I would say one of the things that's so strong about Landfall is the question at the heart of it, which is, do we stay or do we go? And it's not a question that happens once. It's everything about life then is that question. Do we stay or do we go? Now, did you have that in your mind when you were writing, or could you kind of see it as a theme when you looked down on the book when you'd done your first draft? I never write with a theme in my mind. I think it's really important when you're setting out to write that you write the best book you can, given your characters and some notion of where the plot's going. Um, and then at the end you can look, and, and usually it's Liz, who will say to me, oh, there's a really powerful theme of dot, dot, dot. I go, is there? And, <laughs> and it's fantastic. And then she sends her notes back to me and she'll go look on page 40, this is what you mention on page 63, so you need to make it more on page 40. And I think, my God, this woman's a genius. Um, which is great, isn't it? What did you ask me about? <laughs> stay or go, stay or go. And it just occurred to me, actually I was listening to something the other day, and it occurred to me intensely, something that you kind of, if you inhabit your characters, so it's not that they're leading you, but you kind of inhabit them. And if you really are, you're in their imaginative space. And I had always thought that for, let's call them Vikings, I hate that, they, they specifically called pirates Vikings, but for North people, they very much were a community and any decision was always a community decision and it occurred to me only yesterday how difficult that must then be for Bera in different ways she feels the weight of being a Vala and having to make the decisions but that weight of being an isolated individual when you should always be part of a group um, really struck me but the whole stay or go thing is kind of of course because a lot of them obviously wanted to keep moving and there was the diaspora from Norway to Iceland to Greenland to America and the, the further you were from Norway, the quicker it failed and they pulled back so, and climate change, hello um, and they pulled back only as far as Iceland um, but some people will always want to be exploring and others really want to belong and belonging and the sense of home for me, I mean this Shall I just read the here I yeah. bit? I mean, I think this is pertinent to what Kate has asked me. There's a bit where I start in this with... Um, so my mum was Welsh, so I feel intensely... Uh, my family, all that side, were Irish-Welsh, Welsh-Irish, you know, back and forth. But so I've put Hiraith as a frontispiece. Hiraith is a Welsh word for an emotion that has no direct translation because it's so personal always poignant, it's to do with homesickness or grieving for something that may never have been known. The word tugs at a yearning within me that I cannot name. It's certainly to do with loss and never belonging. It's a call from deep time, the long dead, and the sadness of being exiled from a home I have never found. Mm. I mean, the, the, the whole novel kind of sings with that sense and you there are certain moments when you think really better just sit down don't go anywhere else and other moments when you think no you're right you have to do now you you have always said you don't plot um and uh, yeah well you know we will take that with a pinch of salt but uh with 
this, this is a, there's a beautiful love story at the heart of this. Did you know that, that he was going to be him and she was going to be her in that way? Or was that something, as you started to write the next bit of Berra's story, you thought, actually, she deserves this? <laughs> you know, because she's had some, you know, issues. Some, we say. some dodgy men. <laughs> some dodgy all. men. Very dodgy men. Um, yeah, honestly, I didn't know. No. And, um, it, it, and I hope, like the Berra ending, people also read it and go, well, of course, it was always going to be dot, dot, dot. Um, no, I had no idea. I didn't even know. if. I mean, it feels like that because it feels like... <laughs> They're not sure either whether it's going to happen, and that's what's what really lovely, or what it is. Yeah. yeah, no, very much so. But it is a big reveal um, at the beginning, and actually, at the beginning, it's really important, as we know, to have as many reveals as possible, <laughs> so people don't get bored. Um, but anyway, there he is, and I think it's really important that even, I'd say, quite close to the end, neither they nor we know what's going to happen because there are many different kinds of love as we all know and um and also she's got a kid so how is that going to go but there are just a couple of things about your writing that i think as a fellow writer are very distinctive and i say this partly because my new novel is a pirate novel and i I, um yeah lesbian pirates is all you need to know really isn't it Uh, uh, that's the strap line yes exactly um but no, my point was that I think that you are one of the best writers of the sea. And it's really significant and distinctive, I would say. Um, because I don't think there are many people who can write what it feels like to be sailing. You know, people can put characters on a ship, but to actually know what it means to sail a craft. Now, there's two schools of thought in fiction. One is write what you know, in which case there'd be no crime fiction, ladies and gentlemen. Um, (laughs) Or you can use your imagination, good Lord. Um, But you do a mixture of both in this. Now, how helpful is it that you are a sailor and you know, you know, the sea is alive to you? Because I think it sings on every page here. It, It is a great love. Um, and thanks to Richard, I've now found you. Hello. I'm very corny. Richard taught me to say, um, and Rita, I married him. Um, it, it, and we we didn't know for ages. Do I love the sea or this guy? You know, you don't know, do you? Anyway, thirty years on, it's got to be all right. Um, but no, we then point is we then bought a boat and sailed for five years. So yes, it was an intimate knowledge, and we also. I think because it was a a yacht, it wasn't like some great ship. It was quite small, and we had one really dodgy, which Kate knows about, a a passage across the Bay of Biscay that was seriously frightening. And four French some of that, incidentally. Good, you know. (laughs) Uh, um, And then four French fishermen died in that storm, didn't they? So it was seriously hairy. But you do get to know it, and I think you do need that. And then also I went on the Iceland Writers' Retreat, because that was kind of important for North people and so on. And there's a boat there, and I was absolutely flabbergasted by what it actually meant to be on a boat where you can't go below, when it gets really nasty and storms, and they're crossing from Iceland to Greenland and so on, but they're living on a deck. They can't have fires on a deck. They're eating cold food. Um, just the reality of that and then so what do they 
wear, but they wear wool because it's still warm when it's wet. And and, and blah, 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 blah. You you need that experience coupled with imagination to put yourself imaginatively. I mean, you and I love the trundle, don't we? Which is just sort of up here. And that's where the beaker people were. And there's an atmosphere up there where if you stand there long enough, it's almost as if they're speaking to you. And and that's what you get, I think. And, And this museum... Similarly, one of the reasons we're here is that I did a lot of research here. And, and in terms of uh, research, I mean, you have um, a kind of very light touch uh, because you don't ever turn a page and think, oh, she's done a lot of research into, you know, flint axes or whatever it happens to be. Um, but did you do a huge amount of research? I know you, well, I, I know the answer to this, but you're going to say it publicly. Um, before you started, or did you do for the Book of Barrows it was, which then, of course, became Sea Paths, and then Obsidian, and then this. You know, so how much did you supplement the research you did before you got going in the first place? The mistake I always made leading up to all this was I thought I had to know everything. I honestly thought that you had to almost commit murder to write a crime novel. And, and I never really properly got going. And then, again, thanks to Greg, he said, no, JFDI. You know, well, he probably didn't say that's a Richardism. Um, but just write it. Just get it down. Just get the characters on the page. You know where you're going. Then do the research. And the really weird thing, which you'll know as well, Kate, is that you write this stuff, and because you've inhabited this world thoroughly, you do the research and think, bloody hell, that actually did happen, or, you know, this is how they were. And so all writers, and there are several in this room, that moment when you have to stop researching and start writing, um, so, which takes everybody a bit of time, but... How much is the proportion of the research time and the preparation and the writing? So just tell us a little bit about your writing day. When you were writing Landfall, did you write nine to five every day? Did you write seven days a week? You know, just just how do you work? I can't do a you. Say what you do. No, I'm interviewing you. Just answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what I've tended to do, there's a thing in the month of November called NaNoWriMo, where you have to write 80,000 words in November or something? 50. 50. Thank you. So you have to do that, which is a perfect first draft size. So exactly as I've said, when I've just got a notion and it really doesn't matter, and I can do almost like a sleight of hand, it's like, this doesn't matter, my brain doesn't have to engage, it's not like I'm taking it seriously, I'm just playing, just for November. So in every... No, the first two, I have written a first draft in November. And then I missed it um, for various reasons, for, the, for landfall. And I had to take it seriously. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die under the weight of... I mean, am I literally going to die? Because as I had for sea paths and obsidian. So is landfall literally going to be the death of me? It really will be a trilogy. And all you lot go, oh, definitely the end now. <laughs> she snuffed it. But anyway... So I had to sit down and I wrote, um, I think I wrote about 100,000 words for that first draft because obviously it was always genuinely going to be the finish. And so I had so much that I needed to tidy up. And then I think, unusually, Liz got the second draft because nobody sees the first draft. I even hide it from myself. Mm. And did you know, I've just thought of this, that, um, is it Sarah Moss who did the fell and um, Mm. the thing, right? Without, without an E. Without an E. Um, so Sarah Moss was um, 
on the Ice and Writers course with me once, and she said that she never looks back at her first draft. She literally even deletes it from her computer and she rewrites. I mean, she does do novellas. We'd be pushed, wouldn't we? But, um, so she literally starts from the beginning and rewrites it, which I think is amazing because I've got like a knitting bag of excerpts you know I thought well that's a good bit but it's not going to make the cut so I keep it in this sort of folder thing this will come in handy one day how do you feel now now it's done Um, I feel intensely sad there are bits in this some of you are going to kill me I know there are bits in this as there are in book one where no matter how much I kind of manoeuvred it and edited it and finished it but it still makes me cry when I go back there's a bit I'm only going to say famer to anybody who's read book one Um, that for instance that's not a spoiler for anybody else but there's a bit in that which really makes me cry and um, so yes that's how I feel and the end is really moving I mean it's really moving um, and, and honestly, you can all relax, because no matter what Kate says, it really is the finish. It's not. <laughs> i tell you what I'm going to do next. Is that going to be a question? It was going to be a question, but I think that's a good moment to answer it. I'll bung it in then. I'm actually writing a contemporary romance for a woman over 60 who has sex. I mean, how outrageous is that? <laughs> you know, very good. I had an old person sex scene in my new novel, and my editor made me cut it. No. She said, we don't want gener- ger- geriatric sex yeah. at the beginning of this novel. Yeah, no. Speak for yourself, I said. No, no, no. <laughs> but you know, hello, we're baby boomers. It's like when they go into old people's home, they're still playing Vera Lynn and stuff. And you think, why are you doing that? What Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, you know? <laughs> but, but actually, I mean, just pick, unpicking that a little bit more, um, this is such a distinctive trilogy it's got a great sense of place it's got atmosphere it has the old gods versus the new gods it has all of the big emotions that we want I I agree I don't think of it as fantasy really I think of this as great historical fiction so did you feel you needed to kind of flex your writing muscles in a different way or do you think that you'll find a different piece of history that might speak to you as Barra's story has done do you know, the completely honest answer here is I want to make some money, um, which is all, you know, absolutely fantastic. But we're actually going to talk, because we know we're not all as successful as Kate, and that's lovely. We can be moderately successful. But so this week, I've got my PLR, which is public lending, lending right? So that's anyone who borrows your book from a library. So if you hate this, can you donate it to your local library? Because I might make a bob. And you get 30 pence now, thanks to the Society of Authors, for every borrow. Well, I got a cheque for 12 quid. <laughs> so basically, that hasn't paid for one bottle of champagne. You really don't make that much money. So I would, honestly, at my age, like to make a bobble So, too. So that's interesting. So that you feel that that is a, essentially a gap in the market that you could struggle into? I in just, a sort of Debbie Moggock type way, that kind of tone? or Yeah, it's not Jojo Moyes because I'm too old. So it would be, yeah, it would be more like that. But the thing is, I never make a decision. When I... When I started with this, I had to write, I can't remember how much, for the MA, and I was trying to write this gritty crime novel set in Pompey because it was what you know, what you love reading. You know, oh, God, I was bored. And all the time I was trying to write it, this long ship kept coming out of the fog at me. And Greg said to me one week, 
you know, you've got like a fortnight and you've got to present me with 30,000 words. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, panic. So I thought, well, I'm going to follow this long ship. Um, so I did. I thought, well, who are you? Where are you going? Yes, I'd like to make money, but honestly, I just found that I was the next thing I'm writing just happened to be. I wanted it to just be sparky, you know, a bit of humour and, you know. And also, I mean, I think all of us benefit from writing in different kind of areas. Yeah. Um, you know, that you refresh yourself by doing a different type of writing. Um, mm. But I think also it's, you know, what you said is really important for, you know, all of us who are writers or might be wanting to write or whatever, which is the person you are as a writer is not necessarily the person you are as a reader. Yeah. Uh, so you might love crime fiction or you might like, well, you know, whatever it is, but that might not be your voice mm. as a novelist. And that's really what you discovered, wasn't it? That, you know, your image of yourself from the outside was not where your, where your you know, skill was. So how far are you with this and what's, what's the plan? Well, I did a course with Curtis Brown Creative, um, who, a, a sort of literary agency, uh, so see where I'm going. And they were running a course in romantic fiction. And I thought, well, do you know what? That is com- I've never read it. I've never read romances. And because this turned out to be a bit of a love story, I thought, well, maybe this is the way I'm going. Let's do it. And it was with Jenny Colgan, who began as a stand-up. She's wonderful, so wise and witty. And and not a spring chicken, is she? I mean, she's younger than us. Well, she's younger than us, but, I mean, you know, know, most people are younger than us now. (laughs) (laughs) But she's definitely not like some child writing about it. So I thought, well, no, this would be great. So that was wonderful. And then I had to edit this and everything so that went on a back burner and then I just found myself being interested in Mm. it again but I wanted to not it just wasn't working in that voice so I did who did I do it with this time can you remember Richard oh Marion Keys thank you it's exactly Marion Keys the little known author Marion (laughs) Keys She's a one to forget, isn't she? Oh, I know, isn't she? I'm so embarrassed. But anyway, there you are. And I love her from Strictly and everything, you know, Irish dancing, dancing from the knee down. So she's always something... Sorry, Nick. Um, she, she suffered it. Oh, God, daughter. Anyway, fine. Anyway, so I did that with her, and she was very encouraging of going up to an age group where you are comfortable and it's my voice and I've actually for the first time ever written in the first person because I quite wanted the other thing is to actually talk to you lot you know actually talk to the the readers and I'm actually finding that really nice I think it's absolutely brilliant because everybody can see how thrilled you are and (laughs) energized by it but I am going to bring it back to this (laughs) yeah we want to sell it just because um you're here and we're all here to celebrate with you and you said, actually, that, you know, you didn't start at the beginning with the, the idea of a trilogy and, she, you know, you've discovered who she is and she turned out to... You knew her all along, you know, like that wonderful picture. I always think it's like um, old-fashioned photographs where you just have that thing lying in that bath of solution and little by little the outline comes up and then you can see who, who your character is. And you said you feel sad, but at the same time, you must feel a sense of completion with this because you have there are a lot of trilogies and you know longer series um, and John and Liz will have published you know and we've all read them that don't actually give us what we need when we finish and you have and that's really amazing actually it's really hard to finish a series properly uh, without it feeling a little bit pat so you 
You, do you feel like you've got a little bit of a crown on? I hadn't. I hadn't till you said that. So thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, it's been it's been sad as well. So one of the other reasons, which Kate knows, that I was writing at all is that I never managed to have children. I had five miscarriages, and when my mum died, I felt intensely weird about not leaving anything behind so and the reason I've said all that is that it's not self-aggrandizement it's not like this big deal that I want to leave something behind it's it's this this chain almost of our being of our Welshness and so on going on through if we possibly can and um and so that's why I wrote book one and so you're right actually that I think part of my intense sadness really of coming to the end of this is that's it now I've had my three kids basically he can have the snip and um and I'm on to something else <laughs> have you got one more little bit you'd like to read or yeah but you read... are, you, are you not bored just one tiny last bit. bit to finish if you've got a little bit I've just got a tiny yeah. bit from um yeah. the Dublin oh Dublin as I yeah. call it yeah. to, to look very vaguely yeah, I have actually, um, because you talked about. Oh, but this is bit. This is bit Richard loves, um, and you talked about the sea and so on. So it's, it's not actually one of the passages because unlike the others, they're not great huge sea passages in this book. So this is the approach to Dublin um, when they're on their tiny longboat, the Raven, um, heading into Dublin. Then from behind the opposite headland, an immense vessel appeared, bristling with oars. Its dragon prow, with jaws wide open, was as tall as the tree it had been carved from, and the noise and speed was like nothing Barra could have imagined. As it turned into the channel, Heggy stopped rowing to gape at it, and he shouted, and she shouted at him to keep rowing. Wake coming, Barra warned. She marvelled at how cleanly the dragon boat drove through the water with not a splash, despite so many oars on the stroke. These were proper seamen. Boats of all kind filled the channel. Most were long boats without boss shields, like Hefner's fleet of seaworthy trading ships. Others heavily stacked with goods were coastal broad-beamed naras that were wallowing in the crisscross wakes as they headed out of harbour. Several boats looked like bigger versions of Egil's black-pitched curricle, with ten or more rowers, but a few were painted blood-red with striped sails and strangely hatted crew. Vera studied every dragon boat, but there was no sign of her folk. It was a real threat now. How could she save them? Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Now, um, uh, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> no, um, just to say, um, ladies and gentlemen, Susie Wilde. <laughs> You're wonderful. Honestly, well, that was so brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to the signing table. <laughs> so, Tim, what have we got to look forward to this month? Well, there are a number of books coming out in paperback. Um, first one I'm going to talk about is Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. Uh, she did Station Eleven, um, which is was a kind of... Uh, dystopian future post post a pandemic which came out about maybe six or seven years ago so uh, quite prescient um, this book is set partly in the present but also in the future some future time um, on the moon as we as I mentioned uh, I think she's a really wonderful writer and I really enjoy this this really thought-provoking novel um, really recommend it 
Next book is Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson. Now, this is not one of her Jackson Brodie series, which I, with which I'm a huge fan. This is a, it's it's set in twenties London, nineteen twenties London, uh, where young women are disappearing off the streets. Uh, but it's it's a mixture of flappers and hedonism and uh, dodgy coppers. Um, <laughs> she's good at those. She's great. She she really gets a sense of of time and, and place. Uh, and it, it's that's really interesting and entertaining. Does it have her light, humorous touch? Yes, it's it? got it's got a lightness about it, um, but but also dealing with quite a gritty, yeah. you know, gritty subject matter sometimes. Um, the Romantic by William Boyd is just about to come out in paperback. It's the sort of life of a fictional man uh, who gets involved in a lot of key nineteenth-century events. So it's a bit like his his novel Any Human Heart, um, which takes the 20th century, takes a character through the 20th century, um, who's, who's another fictional person. But this, this, the bloke in this, is a, he's a romantic, he's a chancer, he's a soldier, um, he's a colonist in North America, he's uh, involved with, with Shelley and Keats, he's involved in the search for the source of the Nile. Um, it's really it's a cracking return, it's a, a, it's a top form, I think, for William Boyd, and I, I really enjoyed it. Bad Actors by Mick Heron is the latest in the Slow Horses series, um, and uh, I haven't read it yet. I, I'm, I'm a slip one or two behind. So, I, but I've been—I really enjoy them when I when I read them. Um, it's basically about a group of failed spies that uh, they're called the slow horses. They're they're the they're the ones that 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 didn't quite make it, but they're too expensive to fire. So they give them really really boring jobs to do. Um, but of course, they're actually quite good. So um, it's a it's a it's a cracking series of books. New Ocean Hardback uh, is a book called Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld, which I haven't read. I'm looking forward to reading it. It explores the idea that we, we always hear about these um, brilliant male writers getting the beautiful girls, however, <laughs> however uh, ordinary they might be in other ways. Um, and she thinks, well, what, happened, what about if there was a, a brilliant woman writer? Yeah. Would she get all the, all the beautiful young men? Uh, and it's, so it's a kind of that's a, that's the sort of slightly playful uh, and i think um i enjoyed her book um, rodham about a sort of fictionalized story about what would have happened if mm. if when if if hillary had decided to tell tell bill to to get knotted mm. um and uh, so I, I really enjoyed that and i'm really looking forward to reading this well tim i decided uh i would read at long last i capture the castle by dodie smith a backlisted book have you ever read it i've never read it and i would uh, i feel a bit bit that i should have read it i know but i never did and i think i think i'd agree it's more a should but i also think you would find a lot to enjoy in it there's bits of it where i actually want to slap the, the people because it's also terribly terribly so is, is it is it it's so it sounds like it's quite dated possibly that that and um, but also it's designed for a it's a young adult readership you'd yes say, well or? all these things put me off but actually it isn't I think if you're right. if you're a modern young adult uh, well it depends if you're a modern 13 year old you'll probably wonder what on earth is going on if you're a modern 16 year old I think it would still work its magic right. and gradually it did with me uh, I absolutely love it it's got one of the most famous sentences which I must admit I'd never heard um it begins, I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. 
which is, you know, is brilliant. And I think it begins, I don't know this, it was first published in 1948. I think it begins the craze for writing in the first person and as though it's a journal. So she literally is a budding writer writing about, so some of it's in the present tense, so first person, present tense. But it's not unduly breathless because she's writing, she'll say things like, Oh, I've only just calmed down enough to write about what happened three days ago when the Cotton Brothers came back to the castle. So she falls in love. Um, It's first love. It's all sorts of things. But there is something about the mad family living at this castle. The stepmom is called Topaz and is like a pre-Raphaelite model and extraordinary. They are all completely sort of outre characters and yet it's brilliant but but some of it does make me laugh out loud I'm wondering whether this bit will actually work if you don't already know the characters but I hope it will so um the family is starving their um father wrote one good book called Jacob Wrestling which was um one of these books that gets huge renown it's sort of pressing the boundaries like James Joyce with Ulysses but it was up a cul-de-sac and gave him writer's block for the next 10 years so they are in genteel poverty and literally starving when the great aunt Millicent dies and um, the girls go up to town so Rose is the older sister and Cassandra is our writer um, the younger sister and great aunt Millicent has left them these hideous furs I mean we would be very squeamish about it now anyway but one is just like a a collie dog the other is beaver skin that reaches the floor which is apparently her coachman's coat Um, so they put them on so they arrive at the train station to go home wearing the coats and see the two boys that they both rather love Americans Neil and Simon Cotton We hadn't realised how difficult walking would be. The coats were so awkward to hold up and we kept tripping over things. The paraffin lamps on the platform gave a very weak light and there were no lamps at all so far along as the guard's van. We couldn't reach the doors on our side so we went round the back of the train and climbed up onto the platform. The doors of the van were open that side but there appeared to be no guard to put the trunks off. The station master usually helps with luggage, but he is the ticket collector too, and I was sure he would be busy seeing the cottons off. We must manage by ourselves, I said. The van was so dimly lit that at first we couldn't see the trunks. Then Rose spotted them at the far end behind a lot of tall milk cans. As we went over, we passed a big crate. The feeble little gas mantle was just above it, and I saw on the label, Cotton, Scotchney, Suffolk. Rose saw it too and gave a gasp. The next second we heard voices and steps coming along the platform. We rushed to the doorway, then realised it was too late to get out. Quick, get behind the trunks, said Rose. If I'd had time to think, I might have reasoned with her, told her we should look such fools if we were discovered. But she bolted to the trunks and I bolted too. They'll never see us, she said as we crouched down. I didn't think they would either. The trunks were high and the light was so weak and so far away from us. But crouch lower, I whispered. Your trunk's not as high as mine. Oh, we'll manage between us, sir, said a man's voice. It wasn't the station master, so I guessed it was the guard come back. I'll help, said Neil Cotton, jumping into the van. Then he shouted, 
My God! And jumped out again. The next instant, the doors crashed together with such violence that the gas mantle broke, leaving us in blackness. What is it? What's the matter? shouted Simon Cotton. I couldn't hear what Neil answered, but I heard the guard give a roar of laughter and say, Well, that's a good un, that is. Oh, Rose, he saw us, I whispered. Rubbish! Why would he slam the doors on us? she whispered back. No, it's something else. Shut up! Listen! I raised my head cautiously. I could just see the outline of the window, a little open at the top. I heard Simon Cotton say, Neil, you're crazy. I tell you, I'm certain. Oh, come, sir, I've been sitting in that van, said the guard. But you left the doors open. I saw a faint blur moving in the darkness. It was Rose's face coming up from behind her trunk. What is it? she whispered desperately. Shh, I said, straining my ears. I think I shall remember that minute as long as I live. The stars in the square of window, the bead of light above the broken mantle, the smell of stale milk and fish. I heard Simon Cotton say he would get a flashlight from the car. And tell Mother to stay inside with the door shut, Neil called after him. Rose began to crawl towards the window. There was a hollow clang. She had collided with a milk can. The guard gave a low whistle. <gasps> Sounds like you're right, sir. Of course I'm right, said Neil. Haven't I fed them in Yellowstone Park? And then it dawned on me. Rose, I said, you've been mistaken for a bear. I heard her gasp. The idiot, the idiot. Then she clanged into another milk can. Well, seven-eighths of you is bear, and the circus is at King's Crypt. The tents were close to the railway line. The cottons couldn't have missed seeing them. I began to laugh, but stopped when I heard her struggling with the doors on the far side of the van. She got them open, and I saw her black against the stars. Come on, quick, she said as she jumped down onto the line. I got across to the doorway, and every milk can clanged into the one next to it. Above the din, I could hear Neil Cotton and the guard running along the platform and shouting to the engine driver. Oh, Rose, don't be a fool, I cried. We'll have to explain. She grabbed my hands and pulled until I had to jump. If you don't come with me, I'll never forgive you, she whispered fiercely. I'd die rather than explain. Then you probably will die, because lots of people in the country have guns handy. But it was no use. She had vanished into the darkness at the back of the train. Passengers were shouting and banging doors. There couldn't have been many of them, but they were making a devil of a noise. Fortunately, they were concentrating on the platform side of the train. It suddenly came to me that if I could make Rose take her coat off, we could join in the pursuit as if we had no connection with the bear. So I struggled out of my own coat, flung it up into the van and starting after her. But before I'd gone a couple of yards, the beam of a torch shone out. I saw Rose clearly. She had got beyond the end of the platform and was scrambling up the little embankment. And as she was on all fours, she really did look exactly like a bear. There was a wild shout from the people on the platform. Rose topped the embankment and disappeared over into the fields. Fox Earth's farms over there, shouted a woman. They've got three little children. And on and on it goes. <laughs> Sorry, it, I just think it's really well done because the setup is really good, and um, and it it ends in a really funny way. But that would spoil it. Brilliant, great, thanks, Susie. That was really really entertaining. Yeah, I recommend it. So, Tim, next month we have Candy Gourlay. The book Wild Song is is coming out. Um, I think it's coming out later on this month. Um, she did a book called. Uh, Bone Talk, which was shortlisted for lots of prizes 
about a few years ago, about five years ago now. Is that um, as long as that? It was, Gosh. 2018. Um, Shortly for the Prize, it ne- for nearly won a Carnegie Medal. Um, and it's about, that's about a boy called Sankad and his best friend, Luki. Um, it's set just after the uh, Philippine, Filipino-American War, um, which was at the turn of the... 1900 by 1899 to 1902 I think it was and this is set 1904 so it's just after that um and it's a you know it's about it's about uh the sort of colonial legacy I think I think the 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 Filipino felt that that they'd fought off their colonial the Spanish mm. and but they'd actually just replaced them with the Americans as well they. I didn't know any of the history I absolutely love bone talk and I was slightly resistant to reading this, not because it's Candy, because I think she's a great writer, um, but because I just loved Bone Talk so much and wanted to stay with them when they were younger. Um, and I didn't want them to go to America. But I have just finished, literally this afternoon, Wild Song, and I absolutely adored it. And if you don't sob at the end, you must have a heart of stone, is all I would say. Great. Okay, I look forward to that. So you can find us in all the usual podcast places, and we love hearing your comments and recommendations. Um, Susie's book, Landfall, and her two previous books, which start with the, the Book of Beer, uh, are, of course, available here in the bookshop. And I can't wait for next month, Tim. Thank you for that. Thank you, Susie. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly and produced by John Wellsman. Evacuees from Ukraine are dreaming of peace. Now you can support them at a live musical event in Petersfield. Enjoy traditional and modern Ukrainian performances from the Two Colours Women's Choir. See Hugh Bonneville interview a local Ukrainian family and help raise funds for an armoured evacuation vehicle to help save lives in Ukraine. The Ukrainian Spring Concert takes place at Church's College on Friday the 24th of March. Tickets are on sale now. See shineradio.uk forward slash events for details or search Petersfield Ukraine on Ticket Source.